we're uh, um, talking about the series, uh, The Road Out of Town, because um, during the uh, Lenten season, we were talking about the road to the cross. And so what happened was is that Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he did something pretty significant. He died and resurrected, and then that message went out of town. And we get to be a part of that, and so that's kind of what we're exploring in this. And we've been uh, following the work um, written by this man named Luke. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about Luke today. He has a significant contribution to Christianity because he wrote two books. One is the Gospel of Luke, this biography of Jesus that he wrote, and then he also has the Acts of the Apostles. Now, normally speaking, when we talk about it in church, we talk about the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But the official titles, I don't know who decided what the official title was, but the official title is the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, okay? So you've got these two, um, these two works, and scholars will actually put them together. They think it's, it's one, one work, um, and uh, like, like almost like it's one book. Um, but I think it's better to think of it as a one book in two volumes. We'll talk about that in a minute. In the meantime, a little bit about Luke himself. He was Greek. He was not Jewish. Uh, that means he was a Gentile, but he believed in Jesus. <clears throat> and um, he was also a physician by training. And so one of the things that we've noticed about the work that he put together, the things that he wrote about, is that... Um, he cares about different things than some of the other biographers of Jesus. And some of that is just due to his Greek training. He's very interested in history and certain fact and certain details that we don't find in the other Gospels. Now, he borrows very heavily from the book of Mark, just like Matthew does, but he has his own kind of take on things. And remember, my fundamental presupposition every time I open up one of the Gospels is that this is a sophisticated writer and an author with an agenda. And he's writing to a different audience. He's writing to a primarily Greek audience. And so there's, it's going to look different. There's going to be things that are, are important to Luke that um, may or may not be important to both Mark and to Matthew. So understand this. So he's much more um, thorough in his detail. And he's, I, I would say he's a little more organized about things as well. Um, and I, in, in that sense, he's much more historical in nature than some of the other authors. But the beauty of Luke-Acts, this movement from one volume to the other, is that there's this very clear picture about the ministry of Jesus shifting over to the ministry of his disciples. And there's a certain amount of continuity to that, and that's why it's so interesting to us when we study it. And so we, we tend to, to think of it as one work because of that, of that transition. And what's interesting is that we find that there's very little overlap between, between the two. That's why we think of it in two volumes, um, uh, just, just a little bit. Um, although we find a couple of elements that are common to both, and one of which, um, and I just thought I would throw this out there as just kind of an interesting fact, is this term. In Acts chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 1, we find um, Luke writing to this man named Theophilus. Okay? <laughs> Excuse me. And he's writing uh, to Theophilus, essentially saying, this is the reason why I'm writing this stuff down. 
I want to give an, an orderly account of this life of Jesus. And then he picks it back up again at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 and again addresses Theophilus. Now here's the fun part of this. There is this endless debate among New Testament scholars as to who Theophilus was. Because it can be a name, right? Theophilus is a name. But if you divide the word a little bit, it's two words, Theo, Philus, okay? And these two words in Greek have very specific names to them. Theo refers to God. Philus comes from the Greek term phileo, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is love, brotherly love. So Theo... Um, Philus, Theophilus, means God lover, right? Or people who love because of God, depending on how you do it. So it could very well mean that he's writing this to all Christians. Isn't that cool? And nobody has no idea, has any idea really what he meant by that. So he's writing to Theophilus or he's writing to you and me, right? So it's kind of a neat, neat little thing. Um, when, you, when you pick this apart. And so scholars have now justified their existence, so we can, we can kind of move on and talk about, about uh, Theophilus, because we are Theophilus, uh, I think so. So we had this uh, little detour last week for Earth Day, and uh, I spent most of my day yesterday doing Earth Day kinds of things, because the weather was so nice, I hope you did too. Uh, so we're going to return to our series exploring all of these things that happen immediately following the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so one of the other places that we find a common element between these two books, Luke and Acts, is Luke 24, the last chapter, in Acts chapter 1. Okay? There is some overlap here, and I want to read through it because I want you to see this, and then I'm going to um, make a couple of observations about it. So the scene itself describes um, Jesus' kind of final instructions to his disciples, the final interaction he has with, with them. And so let's, let's read through this. This is Luke uh, chapter 24, beginning with verse 45. Then he, meaning Jesus, opened their minds, that's his disciples, so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the, for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he, uh, he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Okay, so that's the end of Luke. And you have to remember, Luke 24 also talks about the, the resurrection. And so Luke kind of gets to this ending very quickly. But then he picks up this same scene again in Acts chapter 1. Here it is. After his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them, his disciples, and, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
Then they, his disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now remember, Jesus had never talked about the kingdom of Israel. He's talked a lot about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on where you're reading, but not the kingdom of Israel. So it kind of betrays where, where the disciples saw how all of this was going to pan out, okay? So they ask him, is, is, this, is this it? I mean, are we, are, is, is it time? Is this going to happen? And they kind of get excited about it. Notice what Jesus says. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Okay, so we have basically the same scene that's happening. One has a little bit of different detail than the other. Do you see that? Okay, this makes sense. But did you notice there's some common overlap here? And the one that I want to talk about today is this one. You will be my witnesses. How many of you have read this before and have seen this, right? Yes? Okay. Um, this is a common passage, whether you read it in Luke or whether you read it in Acts, and we talk about this idea of witness or being, in the witness, uh, or being witnesses. Now, I remember quite well the 80s. And during the 80s, besides the fabulous music of the 80s, one of the things that I remember the most was there was a, a trend in church world where we, we talked about um, witnessing. Do some of you remember this, this idea of witnessing? Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember the first time I heard it. Now, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and in our Lutheran church, we didn't talk about witnessing at all. Um, it wasn't that kind of church. And so when I first bumped into it, I think it was a little bit older. I had no idea. I think I'd heard about it from a family member. And it was in the context of, uh, yeah, there's this person I've been witnessing to. And I remember thinking, well, what does that mean? And, and then um, a little bit later, you're talking to them, and it's like, well, now I'm discipling them. So I went from witnessing to discipling. And what I learned over a period of time is that witnessing became a word that we use interchangeably with, can you guess, evangelism, right? Because apparently we don't want to use that word, evangelism. We're going to use the word witnessing. So one becomes a euphemism for the other. And so I, I just I remember this. And people would start witnessing to others like their neighbors or people at work. I remember even, uh, I think it was Campus Crusade, which isn't called that anymore, I guess. I guess it has a different name now. Um, but Campus Crusade uh, used to run <laughs> these programs over spring break where uh, well-meaning Christian kids would go witnessing to other college students on the beach in Florida and in Texas, which just seems really weird to me. I'm just, can I just say that? I mean, I'm not so sure that was the real reason, but that's okay. Um, God bless them. <laughs> I never did that, by the way. So I just, anyway, uh, anyway, it's synonymous with evangelism, and it's really about telling other people about Jesus. Now, the problem that I think, and that problem, I, I think what happened in the 80s is that it became, um, this idea of witnessing, this idea of evangelism became a sales pitch, complete with a close. 
And it would walk through various steps, kind of logical orient, you know, in orientation to, to help you draw certain conclusions. And then the final close um, was, this: would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Or something similar to that. Which, which, by the way, if you go through sales training, it's the closing thing. You ask them for the business, right? So this is very similar. And I think in the 80s it kind of made sense because that was, that was a new kind of a fresh approach to it. And there were different versions of this, um, different questions that you would ask, different things that you would try to, to lead people through in that process. And in fact, some of you I, I know have found faith this way. Um, so I'm not, I'm not tossing that out, saying it's necessarily a bad thing, although I have some serious question marks whether that works today or not. But the whole point is this idea of witnessing took on the, uh, the character of evangelism, those two things, okay? <clears throat> and that seems to be part of American Christianity. But here's the question that I keep asking. When Jesus used this term, you would be my witnesses, was he really talking about that? Was he really talking about evangelism in the sense of closing the deal? Are you with me? And I, I got to be honest, I think the whole sales pitch kind of thing, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But more importantly, when we take this term, witnessing, and we apply it to evangelism in that way, I have to, I have to go back to the first principle and say, is that really what Jesus was after? Is that really what he was talking about? And so I want to spend a couple of minutes just kind of exploring that with you. And my, my, the place that I kind of want to start here is, would it help if we understood that in Greek, the word used here is martis. It's where we get the word martyr. You will be my martis. Yeah. Got, well, it got a little quiet in here, didn't it? <laughs> when we start thinking about that. Does this kind of change our understanding of the word witness? Maybe just a little bit? Yeah, I think it might. The word martis was applied to people who proved their strength or commitment of faith in Jesus by undergoing a violent death. Yeah, sign me up for that, right? No. Yeah. Martis is the word in Greek that was applied to that group of people who had suffered that death. And Roman Christians who suffered persecution and then, uh, you know, whether it was at the, the Colosseum in Rome or any number of other ways, were termed martis. It's the Greek term. You will be my martis. Uh, so how are you feeling about that? <laughs> and is that really what evangelism means here? Now, I will say this. We have to be a little bit careful because... Martis, meaning martyr, actually had some other uses in Greek. And we need, to, we need to talk about those too because I think that adds a certain amount of depth to all of this. There were other definitions of martyrs in use before the persecution was widespread against Christians in the Roman, um, uh, in the Roman world. And um, in fact, if you think about it, when Luke actually penned this, there weren't the Roman persecutions of Christians going on at that time. Or if they were, it was very early in the process and weren't necessarily seeing it like much later, a few hundred years uh, later. 
where Christians were, you know, wholesalely slaughtered because of their faith. <clears throat> so there are two other aspects that we need to talk about a little bit here with the word martis. Uh, the first one is legal. There's a legal use of the term martis, and that means to speak in support or an accusation of someone based on your observation or experience with them. So we get, we get this term witness, uh, this idea, this legal aspect, because we've watched people like Perry Mason or L.A. Law or Law and Order or whatever your favorite, you know, crime drama is, right? So we understand this idea of witness, this legal understanding, is that you put someone up on the stand as a witness and they provide, what's the word? Testimony, right? Yeah, we get this idea. And that person who's up on the stand will speak in support or in accusation of the person who is on trial. And so Jesus uses this term very specifically, you will be my martyrs, my, my witness, okay? So keep that in mind. The second aspect is historical. Um, you witness an event, spectator or observer. Let me give you a great example of this. In 1980, my dad and I were glued to the Winter Olympics when the US hockey team beat the Russians for the gold. There was a moment in there, we realized that we were watching history being made. Because up until that time, the Russians were the joggernauts, right? It was, the, it was kind of the height of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan had just come to power, and he was tough talking, and it was just this different time, and we were watching this. We were uh, spectators to this, and we saw, well, this, this is history. That's being made here, and we understood that. That's Martis. You understand? So we've got this other aspect of, of spectator or an observer, and suddenly the word witness takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? So we've got this idea about violent death, which none of us are excited about, um, but we also have this idea of, 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 of being an observer and providing a certain amount of, of testimony. And, and I don't know, for, from my own perspective, the evangelism techniques of the 80s seem kind of invasive, almost counterproductive. Now, again, people came to faith that way. I'm not, I'm not arguing that, but I'm just saying that in today's world, I'm not sure that they're really going to help, help us. And so we, if we think of the usage here, you are witnesses of these things. It's almost past tense, like it's looking backwards. And so at the end of Luke, he's looking backwards with this word. You are witnesses of all the things that I've done. I, I, I lived my life. I did a, a certain amount of ministry. I died and I was resurrected. You are witnesses to that. Backward looking. So you're a spectator, right? You're an observer of these things. But at the same time, and you will be my witnesses, will be. So future tense is looking forward, which kind of... I kind of wonder, what, what, is, what does that really mean? You will speak in support of Christ, or you will observe me do more. And I'm going to let you decide which interpretation you like. Because both are appropriate here. Maybe it's both and, not either or. Does that make sense? That you will speak in support of Christ, and you will observe him do more. Which is a really cool thought. Because, I don't know, if you've read the rest of the book, Jesus does some pretty awesome stuff. 
How many of you would like to see that happen again? Yeah, right? Of course. We want to see that kind of thing happen. So I'm going to let you decide which one it is. Um, but it's clear to me that we are supposed to observe and we are supposed to tell. Those are the two aspects of this that we're talking about. Even if we have to tell people with our lives. Hopefully that doesn't happen to any of us, but that's clear of what's going on, at least in, in use of this word, or could be in the use of this word. And so in that sense, it's not about helping people make a decision for Christ, although, yeah, we want to help them to do that <clears throat> as far as evangelism's job. But can I just say, that's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps people make decisions to follow Jesus. Those of us who are Wesleyan, we call that prevenient grace. It means that God's grace is active in their lives long before they even know who Jesus is. And so we just kind of come alongside and help the Spirit do his job, but that is his job. It's in his job description, not necessarily ours. We see what God is doing, and then we tell that story when it's appropriate. We give that kind of testimony, especially if it happened to you and in your life, it's kind of important that you tell that story. And so let me ask you this question, kind of as we're wrapping this up. <laughs> what have you observed, um, or what have you witnessed God do in your life, or maybe in the life of someone else? Or maybe it's a set of circumstances that you've um, observed over a, a period of time. Uh, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a person at work. And, I, you know, I don't know what the story is for you, but my guess is, is that there have been, there's been a point in your own walk with Jesus when you have seen or witnessed God do something in someone else's life or in your own life. And I want to just encourage you, start there. If we're going to talk about evangelism, if we're going to talk about this idea of spreading good news, the easiest way to do that is to tell people the good news that you experienced. Are you with me on this? I don't think it's more complicated than that. Start with the most basic piece. It's easy to get distracted. There are plenty of of uh, competing noises out there, and sometimes we have our own myoptic view of what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. That's not what I'm talking about. I think our job is to simply notice what God is doing, where he's working, to be that witness, to see those things. And, and I don't know about you, but when I've seen God move, it's really hard not to tell the story. So I'm going to tell you a quick one. Last night, we went to um, the uh, cookout that our friends at City Lights put on for their, for their neighbors. So basically, it's a building in a low-income part of, of Tulsa, and they do a cookout um, periodically, and um, different organizations can kind of come in and sponsor food, and Thrive Church sponsored that meal last night. And I found out um, that we're like one of the only churches to actually do that, which I thought was really kind of interesting. Um, so anyway, we showed up, and there was a bunch of other volunteers there, and uh, we, uh, we have a cotton candy machine. Let me tell you what cotton candy and kids, they just, mm, I'm telling you, it's like a magnet. That was a lot of fun. Um, but we were there, and we had several other things we were doing, and I, I heard a story. Uh, one of our um, team members brought a, a young man um, from their neighborhood and uh, I don't know all of the details, but 
Apparently, um, this young man, because of his circumstances, doesn't give a whole lot away. He tends to hold on to things. And when you don't have a whole lot, it's very easy for you to do that, isn't it? We don't want to give things away. So we went out and we bought, um, one of our other team members went out and they bought um, some of these glow stick necklaces. And uh, um, we're passing them out. And this little boy um, kept coming back to get more so he could give them away. Think about that. If that's not Jesus doing the Jesus thing, I don't know what is. And I gotta tell that story, right? If you want more uh, details, Brianna can tell you more about it than I can, but I just, I, that's why we do this. Now let me ask you a question. Did that little boy need me to give him a gospel track and tell him that Jesus loved him? Or did I just need to provide an opportunity for him to give something away, like, you know, a 25 or 35 cent, you know, glow stick? You see what I'm saying? When you hear those stories, when you see God move in someone else's life, you gotta tell it to other people. It's very, it's important that we do that because then, we know that God is alive and he's well and he's doing the things that only he can do and people need to hear that because the world needs a little more good news. We got plenty of the other stuff. I don't think we need any more of that. And so think about that a little bit. When you, when you witness, when you bear witness to someone else, you notice what God is doing and then you point it out to others and it doesn't need to, to be intimidating can you actually see things with your eyes? Can you hear things with your ears? The answer is yes. Can you actually tell someone? Of course you can, because you have no problem telling them about the last Game of Thrones episode. Right? Like, come on, let's be honest. And so you can see things, you can witness things, you can observe them, and you can tell them when it's appropriate to do, to do that. And <clears throat> that, friends, is enough. You would be amazed at what the Holy Spirit can do with that in someone else's life. 